Chapter 20. And dear friends, we are about to embark on a few chapters that are some of the deepest chapters of Tanya. Because most of Tanya is here to teach us um, how to become better people. The Tanya is the book not of Hasidic philosophy. Tanya is the book of Hasidic life. How do we become the best people we could be? How could we become a chassid? What's a chassid? A chassid is somebody who's in touch with their soul, living in line with their soul. They're in control of themselves. Their, their body and their animal soul is not taking control of them. The opposite, they're in control of their animal soul. That's a chassid. But there's also a lot of Hasidic philosophy, theology, the teachings, the intellectual side, the pure intellectual side of Hasidus which is very philosophical. Tanya is generally, there's, there's tons of philosophy here, but it's always philosophy taught with a very strong focus on the personal work, character development, teaching us the tools of how to be the best people we can be. Right now, we are going to jump into a three-chapter trilogy chapter 20, 21, and 22, which is very heavy on the philosophy, on the theology. And you'll get a real experience here of learning Hasidus in a very advanced way, learning the teachings of Jewish spirituality, which is helping us gain a deeper appreciation about God, our relationship with God, God's presence in our universe, etc. So these are challenging chapters, even for the advanced student or the initiated student of Tanya, these are advanced chapters, but they're very powerful chapters. And what I want to do is I want to learn each of these three chapters in one sitting, which this morning we did the whole chapter 20 in one hour. We didn't go over time. Um, so I don't expect us to be sitting here for three hours, although we easily could be sitting here for three hours on a, on a chapter like this, because... What's going to be happening now, the Yaltrap is going to be building an argument over many chapters. And it's one long thread. It's one long buildup. So it's very important that we kind of understand the scheme. We understand the storyline. We understand how we're moving and progressing through these ideas as the Yaltrap is building an idea for us. But we're not here to learn philosophy for the sake of philosophy. All this philosophy is going to come down very practical. All this philosophy is teaching us how to be a better Jew today and tomorrow. So, dear friends, we're about to jump into chapter 20. Let's first get our bearings. Let's first get context. Here we go. In chapter 18, two chapters ago, the author of it told us that every single Jew has what's called a deep, hidden love for God. Every Jew loves God more than anything else in the world. Every Jew believes in God more than he believes in anything else in the world. And this is at the very center, at the very core, at the very point of your soul. That a Jew, deep down, if you could just strip away the layers, a Jew and God are one, are indivisible. And a Jew loves God and wants to be close to God. And a Jew is not willing to sacrifice the bond with God. And the soul would rather give up on anything as long as it doesn't lose the bond with God. And uh, the biggest demonstration of this is the sacrifice of Jews throughout the ages to die, to give up their life, to be murdered by anti-Semites rather than to betray their bond with God. I love God too much, I cannot do this. I'd rather die then sever my relationship with God. That is the love that every single Jew has. And the author told us something which is very empowering, something so beautiful. We all have that. We all love God. It's an amazing thing because not necessarily do I always feel that way. <laughs> that I wake up this morning saying I'm in love with God. There's nothing I want more today than to daven and to do a mitzvah. And I, Unfortunately, I can't say that was my experience today. <laughs> Um, breakfast was a lot more appealing to me in the moment, at least, than God. <laughs> right? I'm saying, yeah, we're human beings. So that's part of the problem. We know that we're willing to die for this hidden love. 
You know what the only problem is? What good is this hidden love if you only get in touch with it five minutes before you die? Understand what I'm saying? <laughs> the good news is we all have a deep love for God. The bad news is you only get to know it right before you die, right before you're killed. The question here is, could we live with this love? Is there a way that we could tap into the energy of this love today? You know, thank God, you know, we're, we're living in, in, in difficult times, perhaps even frightening times. But today we live in an era where we don't expect to ever have to give up our life for God. So we don't have to make these difficult choices. You know, today we get to live as Jews. We don't have to die today as Jews. We get to live as Jews. So is there a way to tap into this deep relationship, the love of God that we all possess, to make us a better person, a better Jew, a more committed Jew, tonight, tomorrow? That's the question. Here's a story. 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War broke out, and Israel was caught totally off guard, terribly unprepared, and the Egyptian and Syrian armies crossed into Israeli territory and the road frighteningly the road was wide open for both of these armies to march straight up until Tel Aviv and it, it was it was a miracle of miracles the rabbis said that the Yom Kippur war miracle was greater than the miracle of the six days war the idea that the IDF was, was unprepared was unmobilized and these armies are at war and they're marching and they want to destroy Israel and they want to kill Jewish lives. And they had, the, the road was wide open for them to literally take over every single square inch of Israel. It didn't happen, but it was a very scary first few days. Now, legend has it, <laughs> so the story goes, that there, were, there was a group of Jews, of Jewish activists, who immediately chartered a flight to go to Israel as soon as the war broke out. As soon as the war broke out, and as soon as they saw just how ominous the situation is, they booked a flight for the purpose of dying with the Jews of Israel. The Jews of Israel are facing, God forbid, a massacre. Unfortunately, that was the, what the reality looked like. They're not going to be dying alone. They're not going to be getting killed alone. The American Jews will die with the Israeli Jews in solidarity with the Jews. We're going to die with the Jews. We're going to get murdered by the Egyptian and Syrian armies with all the Jews of Israel. Which is such a beautiful uh, expression of love and dedication to fellow Jews. They go to Israel and they're, you know, it was a, a one-way ticket. We're here to die. We're here to get killed. The miracle happened. Within three days, Israel was able to get back control. And Israel started the offensive stage of the war. And Israel miraculously was able to the opposite they went deep deep into the enemy territory they were on the outskirts of damascus of cairo of the uh of the capitals of the enemy countries the american jews saw that they're not getting killed <laughs> so mission aborted they booked all flights to go back home so the prime minister then golda meir said a very cynical line she said i see that the jews of america are willing to die with us they're not willing to live with us. It's very deep. We all know that we're willing to die for God. The question is, are we willing to live for God? We all have this love, the hidden love that every single Jew possesses to God. Is there a way that we can live with that love for God? Or is that only good to die for God? The altar is going to teach us no. We can harness the power of that love. We can harness our awareness of that love today when we're not facing a test of faith, a life and death test of faith. We can harness the awareness of that love to make us to be a better Jew, a more committed Jew, a stronger Jew, a more inspired Jew tomorrow. That on a regular day, a regular Tuesday, a regular Wednesday, nothing special is happening this hidden love, we can actually tap into it. But in order to learn how that happens and how that works, we have to do something more explaining. we got to do some more digging. What do we know about this hidden love? We know that the soul 
experiences God. The soul doesn't just believe in God. God is the existence, is the reality, is the experience of your soul. And God is, your soul is so committed to its reality, to its bond with God, that it would rather die. It would rather die. It would rather give up on all of its life, all of its opportunities, all, all, everything, all of its experiences, but not to deny this deep belief, this deep experience, this deep conviction of God. So let's understand a little bit more that conviction. Let's understand a little bit more that faith. Let's understand a little bit more what the soul is experiencing. Let's understand a little bit more what, what is the soul's conviction. So dear friends, let us turn to the beginning of chapter 20 in the handouts I sent you this morning, and here we go. Chapter 20 is titled, God's Oneness versus the World's Existence. God versus the world. Right? How does the t-shirt go? Detroit versus everybody? You know that one? Detroit versus everybody? So God versus everybody. Here we go. Part one, the core of Judaism. The Alchemist says, now, there is an idea that is well known to everyone. <laughs> it's interesting. The Alchemist is saying, everybody knows this. I don't know. Do you know this? Does everybody know this? I don't know. The Alchemist says, everybody knows this. What does everybody know? The mitzvah to believe in only one God and the prohibition against idolatry, which are the first two of the Ten Commandments. I am God your God, and you shall not have any other gods. These constitute the totality of the entire Torah. The Altar is going to talk about these two mitzvahs. The mitzvah to believe in one God, and the mitzvah to not have any other God. Which is essentially what our soul is most committed to. The soul is willing to die for these two mitzvahs. The soul is willing to die for its belief in only one God. The soul is willing to die to not have any other God, even to only to bow down as a false action, as an empty action, right? You remember that from last week? It won't even fake it. So the author says, you know, those two mitzvahs, which are actually the first two of the Ten Commandments, constitute the whole Torah, which means like this. The sages discussed this. When God gave us the Torah at Sinai, He actually gave us ten mitzvahs, known as the Ten Commandments. Two tablets, and that's it, right? But our sages tell us that the whole Torah, the entire Torah, every mitzvah, is included within those Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments is like the macro it's the general packaging that has everything within it. So the Jews learned the rest of the Torah over the next 40 years from Moses, but essentially they got the whole thing in the Ten Commandments. But there's something very interesting. I wonder if you know this. If you look in the Torah, you look in our sages, you'll see that we only heard God directly tell us the first two commandments. The following eight, Moses told us. So the, the revelation where the Jews literally heard God, whatever that sounds like. I've never experienced it before. What does it sound like when God speaks to you? <laughs> Is it like what Hollywood makes it sound? Loud, booming voices, loud echo, deep voice. What is it? <laughs> Who knows? Okay, but the Jews heard God speaking only the first two commandments. And our sages say because if you want to get even more generalized, the whole Torah is in these two commandments. Let's continue reading. For the commandment, I am God, incorporates all of the 248 positive mitzvahs, all the do's. And the commandment, you shall not have any other gods, incorporates all the 365 prohibitions. Our sages tell us like this. Every single mitzvah is essentially, is a detail within I am the Lord your God. Which means keeping Shabbos is believing in one God. Putting on tefillin is believing in one God. Putting up a mezuzah, that's really believing in one God. Honoring your father and mother, that's believing in one God. Meaning this mitzvah is, a, is, the, is the essence of every other mitzvah. 
which is a which is a pretty powerful it's a very powerful statement. And then there's another the next mitzvah. Do not have any other gods. You shall not have any other gods. And every single prohibition, every single do not is this mitzvah. Only eat kosher. Don't eat non-kosher. That is don't have an idol. Don't steal. Yeah, it's don't steal. But don't steal is not having an idol. Is only believing in one God. This is Judaism. All of Judaism, right? All the roads go back to all roads lead to Rome. Every single mitzvah is essentially this. Every mitzvah is affirming, is a express is an expression of monotheism. I believe in only one God. We don't have any other gods. Now, how does that make sense? Even look at the Ten Commandments. Keep Shabbos. That's a positive mitzvah. Keeping Shabbos is Believing in one God? Honor your father and mother. Is that that's believing in one God? There's a mitzvah, don't steal. That's don't have idols? Do not covet what is not yours. That's don't have idols? Don't have another God? What's the relation? You know, don't murder. Don't murder? Don't have an idol. What's, what, what's the connection there? This... This teaching from our sages is telling us every single mitzvah is only one God. Don't have any other gods. Don't murder is don't have any other gods. What's it gonna, how do you explain this? This is the question. Let's, let's keep on reading. So we have this idea. The first two commandments is the whole Torah. Says the Alter Rebbe, that is why we only heard the first two commandments. I am God, your God, and you shall not have any other gods. Directly from the mouth of God, as our sages of blessed memory taught. It is because these first two commandments incorporate the whole Torah. So God told us the first two commandments. It's as if God told us the whole Torah already. You heard everything. The rest is the details. The rest is merely the commentary, the expression of these two core principles. But again, what does that mean that belief in God is everything? It's a very powerful idea. All of Judaism is believing in one God. All of Judaism is don't have another God. What's the logic there? So the Altar says, let's, in order to understand this, we've got to go deeper into what does it mean only have one God? What is the importance of our belief of monotheism? Monotheism. We Jews believe in only one God, only one Hashem. That was the invention of Abraham, who we're learning about in this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Lech Lecha. We get introduced to Abraham, who taught the world, there is not many gods, there's not two gods, there's only one God. God is one. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, Echad. There's only one Lord, the Lord is one. You know, you can think about it. What's the big deal? Two gods, one god, it's a big deal. <laughs> Is it that big of a deal if there's more than one god? Monotheism. And what is the belief really in believing in one god? Why is that such an important idea? Why is it such an important belief? I once heard a cute little story. There's a little girl. And uh, she turns two years old one night. A little toddler girl, a little nice Jewish girl, nice Jewish home. I should mention, my daughter Hannah turns one year old tonight. Tonight's her Hebrew birthday right now. One year ago, I became a father for the fourth time. Baruch Hashem, thank God. We have to thank God for the blessings in our lives. And Hannah was a very special blessing exactly a year ago. So, special time to be uh, celebrating with all of you around the book of Tanya. <laughs> okay. Little girl has her second birthday, and her mother tucks her into bed and says a shema with her and says, you know, my dear little girl, tonight you're two years old. Tonight you're two. So she says, yeah, Hashem is one, and I am two. That's a beautiful sentiment. God is one, I am two. <laughs> so what does that mean? God is one, God is not two. So usually what does it mean? God is one. When we say God is one, what are we saying? Or what are we negating? 
So God is one and not what? There's only one God and not what? So most people would say there's only one God and there are no other gods. There's only one commander-in-chief. There's not two commander-in-chiefs. Comes the Tanya, comes Hasidus and says, that's true. But our belief in one God is much deeper. You know what our belief in God is? Our belief in God is not only that there is one God to the exclusion of any other gods, there is only one God to the exclusion of anything else. Hashem Echad, the Lord is one. doesn't only mean the Lord is one, there's no other lords. It means the Lord is the one and there's nothing else in existence. God is the one and only. Let's read. Which is a very, very radical idea. Page 157, part 2 of the chapter, the one and only. Let's read. Says the Alter Rebbe, to have clarity in this matter, we first need to briefly discuss the idea and essence of the oneness of God, the Holy One, blessed be He. What does it mean that there's an idea of oneness? God is one. Says the Alter Rebbe, God is referred to as the one and only. This is a quote from our sages. One, not only one, the one and the only one. Implying that he is the only existence. God is the only thing that is. In the high holiday liturgy, it is written, everyone believes that he is literally the only one. Which implies that he remains now exactly the same as he was before the world was created when he was alone and there was no other entity in the universe. Before the world was created, there was only God in existence. And what do we say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, part of our liturgy? We actually open up the ark when we say this, uh, the, the, you know, this, this, this statement. Everyone believes that he is the only one. <laughs> he's still the only one. He created a world, but he's still alone. Let's continue. This is what we say in the morning prayers. You were alone before the world was created. You are alone since the world has been created. God didn't change. God was the one and the only one before there was reality. And God is the same now. Meaning that he literally has not changed. And God remains the only existence in the universe even after he created the world. As the verse states, I, God, have not changed. So dear friends, this is radical stuff. We need to understand this. The author is saying, don't think monotheism means only one theo, only one God. That's what monotheism means. Mono means one. And theism, theo, means a God. A divinity. We're not saying there's only one divinity. We're saying there's only one thing in existence, which is God. Nothing else exists. And therefore, God is alone and unchanged. Things that happen to us in our lives change us. You know, depending on how significant that event is, determines how much we become changed. But, you know, even think about the act of creation. When I had my first child, (laughs) even when I had my fourth child, that moment changes you. You're not the same person you were before. You are now a father to this baby. That changes you. It changes you practically. It changes your schedule. It also changes you fundamentally. When you're single, you're single. When you get married, there's a fundamental change that now happens to you. Here we say God creates a world. And that creation does not change anything in God. How could that be? <laughs> does, how could you say that There's only one thing in existence. I'm sitting by a table. Is this table real? Is this table a thing? If this table is a thing, then God is thing number one, and this table is thing number two. There's more than one thing, right? How does Dr. Seuss say it? Thing number one and thing number two, right? (laughs) So how many many things are there in existence? There's a lot. I'm here. I'm a thing. Am I not a thing? So there's me and there's God, two entities. But somehow we believe that, no, there's only one entity. There's only one thing. That one thing is God, and God is alone. There's nothing else in existence.
That's radical. Let's continue reading. Because neither the creation of this physical world, something from nothing, nor the creation of all the spiritual worlds brought about any change in God's oneness. The worlds did not change God. Just as he was the only singular and exclusive existence before reality was created, so too he remains the only singular and exclusive existence after he created them. So again, we're back to our question. How do we make sense of this? God created a world. God created a world with things, with people, with events. How can we say that God is still the only thing in existence? Is the, does the world exist or does it not exist? Elon Musk <laughs> is, is obsessed with this. Is the world a simulation? Maybe the world is fake. Maybe all of existence is fake. Right? You ever, you ever, you ever heard about this? It's a big question of philosophy. Maybe, maybe life is not real. Maybe we're just imagining our whole lives. Maybe, may... No, that, but that can't be. Judaism rejects that. Life is real. How do we know the world is real? Because the Torah says, Bereshit Baralokim. In the begin in the beginning, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. So God created the world. The world is real. If the world is real and the world is here and the world is is a thing, and there's a lot of things in this world, how could we say that God is the only thing? So what do we answer? The answer is like this. And dear friends, this is the punchline. This is the key idea that we want to try to understand for the rest of today's class. This paragraph. This is because, here's the explanation, this is because, in essence, everything is considered as not. Literally as if it were absolute nothingness in relation to him. Does the world exist? It does exist. But put it into context. If you put the world, the entire world, the entire universe, not only the physical universe, spiritual reality, put all of reality, but put it into context of God, the world starts becoming a little bit as if it doesn't exist. It's all relative, <laughs> right? Einstein taught us relativity. There was once a great big professor, he goes over to a Jew, like, you know, a Talmudic Jew, and he says, you know, you're a Jew, you're so uncultured. You're sitting and learning Talmud. Do you know that Einstein is busy developing the greatest theories? The theory of relativity. Do you know the theory of relativity? The Jew says, sure, I know the theory of relativity. Very simple. Here's a theory of relativity. Two here's. Is that a lot or a little? Two here's. Is two here's a lot or a little? So it depends. It's all relative. If it's on your head, it's a little. If it's in your soup, it's a lot. That's relativity. So does the world exist? It does exist. But what? <laughs> but what is its existence? When you, well, it's relative. When you only see a world and you don't see God, the world seems very real. When you put the world in context, in relation to God, it actually is as if it's nothing. What's a little example of that? A little example is, imagine you're you're in a very dark room, and you light a candle. The light of that candle, is it significant? Wow, the light of this candle? Now we could see, it's radiant, now imagine taking that candle and walking outside to a beautiful sunny day. Do you see any light from that candle now? Do you sense it? Do you appreciate it? Is it contributing anything? Well, it's gone. No light anymore. This candle is as if it's doing nothing. Which means it's relative. In a very dark space, the existence, the power of this light could be appreciated. But in context of the larger light, it actually turns into nothing. You're not doing anything. <laughs> this candle did not add anything to existence. No additional light. Not even a drop. So that is the idea here. The world exists and God exists. But if you could see things from God's perspective, the world's existence doesn't change anything of his existence. 
And why is that? Because the world's existence is so, so insignificant that it's as if it's nothing in relation to him. And therefore, he is the only existence. Let's continue reading. <laughs> How do we understand this? We want to try to understand this concept better because this is really what the soul believes. That's the key to this whole idea. We're trying to understand what our soul's conviction is. Our soul believes in the one God. What does it mean one God? It means the one and the only God. That's what our soul's willing to die for. So let's try to understand our soul's conviction. Let's try to understand our soul's deep faith, deep belief in this. Says the Alter Rebbe, bottom of page 157, for the creation of the upper and lower worlds, from nothing into something, and their continuous energy and sustenance, keeping them in existence so that they don't revert to be absolute nothingness, as they were previously, is nothing other than God's word and the breath of his mouth, which is present within them. Oh, here the author is trying to get to give us more understanding. Here is the explanation. How did God create the world? How did God create the world? What did he do to create the world? It's in the Torah, it's in the Bible. What did he do? What was that, Polina? He said that the world was created with words. With words. Creation are God's words. Whatever you see is words. Now, not only then, when God created the world, but even now, how is our world operating? How is this table in existence? How am I in existence? You know how? Because God's words are powering reality, giving it life. And that is the very substance of our universe. What is the substance of our universe? It's God's words. Specifically, there were 10 utterances that God said, and those 10 utterances gave birth to and continue to activate all of reality. 10 utterances. Like about 100 words. That's it. Maybe a drop more than 100 words. 100 words. How many words did I just say <laughs> since a half hour ago? I said a lot more than 100 words, no? 100 words is nothing. What's 100 words? Anything that you know of, your pleasures, your experiences, your pain, your deepest dreams, your aspirations, that is all nothing more than the words of God. Oh. Now that will give us a better way of understanding this concept. How the world, reality, in relation to God is like nothing. So let's now give the analogy. This is very, very typical of Hasidus. We're going to give an analogy from the human experience. And then we'll apply that analogy to God and that will help us understand this concept. Let's think about the words that we say. Let's talk about one word. You say one word. What's that one word? It can be anything. Where does that word come from? Biologically, it comes from your mouth, but really it's your soul speaking. In your soul, you have the ability to speak. So the ability to speak is speaking. So you say a word. Let's start taking a word that you said. One word that you said. Let's start comparing it to you. So there's you, and then there's a word that you say. Let's start putting these two existences side by side. You are a thing. A word that you say is also a thing. But are these two things the same? Are they both equally a thing? Or does one start becoming insignificant in relation to the other thing? So let's read. And dear friends, we're going to do this in 20-30 minutes, the rest of the chapter. It's a little bit deep, but it's also simple. 
meaning this, the essential idea is very simple, but there are some details, there are some nuances. So we're going to read, and uh, but it, t- it takes time to digest this chapter. So even after we get through till the end, you're gonna maybe gonna have to read it again to get it. So let's read it again. Let's read part three on page one fifty eight. Part three, an analogy: a word versus you. A word. Says the Alter Rebbe. Let's draw an example from the human psyche. When you say a word, that that single word is utterly insignificant and considered like nothing when compared to the soul. A word versus the soul, that word becomes very, very insignificant. In what sense? Let's read. The author is going to do this in multiple layers. What layer of the soul? Well, let's say the one word that you said in relation to the soul's ability to speak. That word has no meaning. Why? Because the soul's ability to speak is infinite, is endless. Your soul could speak infinite words. That's your soul's potential. Your soul is able to speak. And one word that it said is not significant in the face of the power to speak that you have. Which means that one word that you said doesn't change your power to speak. It doesn't diminish it. It's not like, oh, I just used up a word. If you used up a word, that's, that's very significant. But when you could speak infinitely, when you could say anything, one word that you once said is meaningless to your ability to speak. It's not of value. I just Googled this. Do you know how many words the average person says on, in, in a lifetime? Interesting question. The average human being, how many words do they say? So of course, <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Are they male? Are they female? <laughs> What's their job? How many years are they living? But according to Google, or at least according to the first Google result that I got, it's over 800 million words. In a lifetime. So imagine one word that you said versus 800 million words of your lifetime. That one word is of insignificance. It's like taking a drop of water and throwing it into the ocean. That one word, just that, that one drop loses its any sense of existence, any sense of meaning, any sense of, of realism. Did that one drop just change ocean levels? <laughs> Imagine taking one drop of water, freezing it, and throwing it into a hot tub. Or throwing it into, you know, let's say you take one drop of water, boil it, and throw it into an ocean. Oh, I just did global warming. No, you didn't. That's one silly drop. That one silly drop becomes nothing when you throw it into an ocean. It does nothing. (laughs) It didn't add anything. It didn't detract anything. it It didn't heat the water. It didn't cool off the water. It did nothing. One word versus your soul's ability to speak. Your soul will actually speak over 800 million words in its lifetime. Your soul could speak billions of words, endlessly, anything, in any language. You have the ability to speak. What's one word? Meaning one word is a thing. You say it. That word left your lips. That word was a force of energy that just left you. We're not saying it's not real. The word was said. But what is the value of that word when compared to the soul's ability to speak? Let's read now. That word, that word is considered totally insignificant even in relation to the soul's general power of speech, which is a peripheral layer of the psyche. Of the soul's three garments, thought, speech, and action, the power of speech is its middle garment. A single word is insignificant compared to the soul's power of speech since that power of speech can produce a never-ending, infinite stream of words. So what's one word compared to your soul's entire infinite ability to speak? But let's go further. 
Where does a word come from? Every word that we say is powered by our thought. We first created that word in our thought, and then we say it, right? Is that how us humans? Speech comes from our thoughts, which means I'm walking down the street in the morning, I see Joel Lieb, and I think in my mind, it's morning, I should say good morning, so I say good morning. So my good morning, which came out from my mouth, from my power of speech, comes from my thought. So let's take that word and compare it to your power of thought. Let's go deeper into the soul. Says the author of it. It becomes even more insignificant. Why? Let's continue. Although more so is that one spoken word insignificant in comparison to a higher level of the psyche, which is the soul's innermost garment, the faculty of thought, from which the spoken words are derived and powered. You think, the soul thinks. Does it affect your thinking if you say it or not? It doesn't change it. Your thoughts are your thoughts. You say it not for your thoughts. You say it either to share it with somebody else, but the thought remains a thought. So one word that you once said compared to the thought that created that word. Was that thought less of a thought before you said the word? Did the word make the thought more of a, th- of a thought? No. The thought is healthy and stands alone, and the word has nothing to do. <laughs> the word doesn't add or subtract from the thought. And think about the soul's entire infinite ability to think. What is one word? How, how much value is one word that you once said have in relation to your ability to think? It's nothing. It doesn't change you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't change what the thought is. It doesn't change your power of thought. One word is insignificant. Is this making sense? It's, it's, a, very, it's a deep, subtle idea, but how, how are we doing so far? We're we doing okay? Let's go even deeper. So a word that we say, where does it come from? It comes from the mouth. It comes from the power of speech. Our soul has the power of speech. But that word flows from the brain, from the thought. We thought of it, so now we're saying it. Okay, where does that thought come from? You know where the thought comes from? The thought comes from an emotion. It comes from the soul itself. Meaning, what do we think about? We say things. The saying, the speech, comes from thought. The thought comes from where? So thoughts come from the soul itself. Our soul has intellect and emotion. Meaning, our soul has the way it thinks, and our soul has its intellect, and our soul has feelings so for example one day all of a sudden you'll feel an attraction a love a desire towards something or towards a person one day you'll feel anger one day you'll feel shame that's the emotion but then what happens is that emotion is sent to the brain to start thinking about it to process it In our thought, we process the raw feelings of our heart and the raw ideas of our mind. And once we think about it, then we could say it. So we're backing up the process here. There is something that we say. That something that we say comes from what we think. What we think comes from the soul itself, from the intellect and from the emotions. So now let's compare the word to the thoughts and the emotions of the soul itself. That word becomes even more insignificant. Why? Let's explain. Says the Alter Rebbe, and it goes without saying, bottom of page 158, and it goes without saying that a single spoken word is considered as nothing when compared with the core of the soul itself, which consists of the ten soul powers that we learned of earlier, 
Chachma, Bina, and Das, etc. It is from these soul powers that the letters that constitute the thought are drawn and are subsequently expressed in the spoken word. Which means like this. You feel an attraction. Towards what? Towards a book. Okay? In your heart, you feel attraction. I want to learn more about this. So, for example, I love history, so I feel this very often. I want to read about this topic in Jewish history. Okay. What happens then is that attraction goes to, the, goes to my mind to think about it. That's where I process that feeling, and that's where I make it into a conscious a conscious idea. Then I could then express that attraction by speech. And here's my question for you. The speech of that idea, does it, does it change the attraction? Does it make the attraction better? Is the attraction less of an attraction if I didn't verbalize it? And now that I verbalized it, is my attraction more of an attraction more of a love if i feel shame is the shame less shame if i don't if i don't verbalize it is it more shame if i do verbalize it the emotion is an emotion it has nothing to do with the words the word that you use to describe it doesn't touch the emotion itself the emotion itself stands beyond words the word is only how you're going to describe the emotion to somebody else. But the emotion itself stands on its own. So the author says, if you compare a word to the emotion that created that word, the word is like nothing. Which is true. Can a word capture the depth of an emotion? No. You know, somebody who's really good with words could write an entire book and it still won't describe the emotion. But I wrote 500 pages. Words are so limited. Words are so finite. Words are so shallow and crass that it doesn't even begin to capture the depth of my human emotion. So it's just one word. And then I have a whole emotion. What's one word in relation to the emotion? It's nothing. So the Altavist says, compare one word to the emotional space within your soul that created that word, that ultimately gave birth to that word. That one word versus the emotion versus the soul itself is worth nothing. Is this making sense? How are we doing so far? This is a deep idea, right? But let's go even further. The Altavist has something so fascinating. You ready for this? And this is going to be the final point that the author concludes a chapter with. The author says, in the soul itself there are no words. So not only is the word considered like nothing compared to the emotion of the soul, but within the soul itself, within the emotional space of your soul, words don't even exist. Which means the word that you will use to express an emotion is totally removed from the emotion itself. The emotion itself is so much greater and beyond the whole sphere of words. It is light years away from words. Which means like this. The author walks us through the human psyche. Again, let's, let's think about an attraction. Attraction to ice cream. Okay, let's use something very universal. We all love ice cream, right? So what happens? First, you have an unconscious awareness of the pleasure of ice cream. That's the first thing that's going to happen. Your mind is going to recognize ice cream is good. Now, that happens at a very young age. Okay, but money comes much later. The mind doesn't appreciate money until at what age? My mental is six. He's starting to get an appreciation for money. Meaning a mental awareness of the goodness of money. 
When he was three, he would rip up a dollar bill. Now he sees a dollar bill, ooh, that's value. So first the mind has to recognize and have an awareness that this thing is theoretically good. Then the heart starts responding to the mental awareness and starts creating an emotional attraction. Oh, I love money. I want money. I want ice cream. That is the emotion. The heart recognizes, responds to the intellectual awareness, the intellectual recognition of this attraction, of this thing. And now the heart says, oh, I want that thing. And that is the emotion. What then happens? What happens after the heart feels the emotion? The emotion gets sent to the brain to think about it. What happens when we think of an emotion? That's when we process it. That's when we give that emotion a construct. That's when we give it words. That's when we give it a language. That's when we can describe it. The mind, the thought, the power of thought helps build us a picture for this emotion. You see, the emotion, before it goes to be thought about, the emotion is very raw. It has no words to it. Can't describe it. It's a raw emotion. You don't even know yourself how to describe it. So when that emotion goes to the mind to be thought about, well, part of thought process is that we give this emotion a voice, a language. We give it words. We make it sophisticated. We describe it to ourselves, and now we could describe the love. Now we could describe the emotion, which is very true. We see that about ourselves. In the moment when we feel an emotion, very often we cannot describe it. What are you feeling? I have no words. Why don't you have words? Because your mind didn't have time yet to process the emotion. And the author says words are created in thought. Prior to thought, you have a raw, pure emotion, but that emotion has no words. And you see that people who are in deep pain, they cannot describe what they're feeling. All they know is that I have pain. They know they have the emotion, they feel the emotion, but they can't describe it. It's not that they can't talk right now. It's that they themselves didn't process it yet. They didn't give words yet to this emotion. Same thing about an idea. Have you ever been to like a situation, maybe you've been to a class, and you've been like, you know, I disagree with what Rabbi Dubov is saying. That just doesn't make sense to me. But then sometimes I'll ask you, well, why doesn't it make sense to you? And you'll find yourself lost for words. I don't, I don't know why. It just doesn't make sense to me. I, but I can't explain it yet. Why not? Because your soul is giving you a raw intellectual idea. You didn't give... Your thought has to process and give words, create words for that idea. So words is something which comes very late in the process of your soul's uh, factory. <laughs> soul... Words are a later addition to your emotions and to your ideas. So the Altibus says, look at that. Take a word, a word of an idea, a word of an emotion, a word that you said to describe an emotion. And then let's go and compare that to the emotion itself. Not only is that word so insignificant in relation to the word, sorry, not only is that word so insignificant in relation to the emotion, but from the perspective of that emotion, words don't exist. <laughs> the emotion doesn't know about words. What's words? I'm an emotion. Words is something that your mind and your thought add on to your feeling later on. <laughs> That's the way it gets processed later on. But if you would look at the soul, there are no words there. There's no description for your emotions. It's just an emotion. So the says, look at that. When you go deep enough in the soul, not only are the words insignificant, words don't even exist there. 
So a word literally doesn't exist when you compare it to the source of that words in the soul. How does that, does that make sense? How are we doing? Polina, help, 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 help us out of it here. Is what I'm saying making sense? Yes and no, because um, when we, in a plain language, when we talk about feelings, mm -hmm. there are body sensations and there are emotions. You kind of felt like I was writing your thought, uh, your your description, and basically, it it almost was going thought, emotion, then thought again, then word. And oh, okay. So the first thing is not thought. The first thing okay. is intellect. intellect, emotion, thought, speech. Intellect is subconscious. Thought is your consciousness trying to understand a feeling that emerged from your subconscious. So intellect, which is what you know and understand and appreciate, your heart automatically creates your emotional attractions or all of your emotions based on your intellect. And then you process that emotion in your thought and then you could speak it. But Would here's, you please repeat it again? The, the yeah. intellect, intellect, emotion, thought, speech. But intellect and thought are not the same. Thought is an activity. I'm going to think about my feelings. Intellect is what your, what your mind understands. And based on what your mind understands, either intuitively or subconsciously, your heart creates your emotions based on that. Like money. You don't have to think about money to want money. Right? Your mind, the moment your mind appreciated money, your heart started creating an attraction to money. That's as an example. Same thing about a nice car. I used to not be attracted to a nice car. Now I have a little bit of a deeper understanding of a good car, of a bad car, of a smooth car, of a this car, of a that. What minivans are the better models? Now I have an, so now I have an attraction towards the right, right. Here's here's one last example, and then I'm going to read it. Does your emotion have a language? Is shame English, or is shame Chinese? Is love English? Is love Hebrew? Like, what language is the feeling of love? What would you say? It's no language. <laughs> what do you mean? It's a feeling. This, it's not a language. It's universal. Right? Even emojis. It's interesting. Emojis, which are describing feelings, are universal. Emotions are beyond words. They're beyond languages. Oh, when we want to describe the feeling, we'll use a, we'll use a language. When we think about, when we process an emotion in our mind, we think in a language, right? We think in a language. I think in English. Because in the mind, there are already words. But the emotion itself transcends words. So even though the emotion will later give birth to words, which will describe the emotion, but the emotion self stands totally transcendent of that word. And this is getting us back to the exact same idea. When you put the word and the emotion from which that word, which ultimately will give birth to that word, when you put them side by side, that word is nothing. Let's read. Page 159, beautiful ending of the chapter. Very, very beautiful analogy. And the way the author describes the, the human psyche. Page 159, part 4, the soul beyond words. The author says, let's explain this further. Just as in the faculty of speech, the faculty of thought also consists of letters and words. Meaning the idea of words and language and letters exists in thought. It is only that in thought, the letters are more spiritual and subtle than in speech. Right, but we... Our mind is also using words and letters and language to 
process. But the Alter says, this is not the case within the core of the soul itself, in the ten soul powers of Chachma, Bina, and Das, etc., which are the root and the source of the thought. At the point before an idea or a feeling takes expression in the faculty of thought, there are no letters or words. Right? Before your mind, before your thought processes the emotion, there are no words. These ten soul powers reflect a psychic state prior to the emergence of letters. For example, says the author Eva, for example, when a feeling of love or desire for something initially falls into your heart, before it rises from the heart to the brain to be consciously thought and contemplated, it doesn't have yet any element of letters or words. At this point, it's just a simple, pure desire and longing in the heart for the thing that you desire. So before you think about your emotion, that emotion has no words. It stands very powerful, it's a real emotion, but the emotion before it's processed in your thought has no words. And certainly, let's continue reading, and certainly there are no words or letters before the desire and craving for that thing entered into your heart when your recognition of the thing as something desirable was merely in your intellect, comprehension and mind. Meaning, when you were aware that this thing is pleasant and desirable, and that it's a good idea to acquire it and connect to it, such as learning a particular subject or eating a particular delicacy. So you could even trace the emotion to when it was still just a mental recognition. You didn't even feel it, you just knew about it. There for sure aren't any words at that stage either. For sure not then. Says the Alter Rebbe, it is only after the yearning and craving already fell into your heart, fueled by the recognition of your awareness, intellect and mind. And it's only after that desire ascended from the heart to the brain to ponder and contemplate how to actualize your desire, meaning how to actually get hold of that food or acquire that knowledge. It is only at this point that letters and words are born in your mind. It is only at this point that a pure, raw desire is expressed in various languages of different nations in which they speak and contemplate all worldly things. So the Altimus has something very interesting. Not only is the word insignificant compared to the emotion, because what's a word compared to an emotion, but if you could trace that emotion back to the heart, back to the soul, there are no words at that point. Words are obsolete. <laughs> words are not a thing. That's the analogy. What's the analog of the analogy? If all of creation is just a word, what's that word in relation to the creator, to the sayer of that word? It's nothing. And here we're getting a better idea of what we believe about God. We don't believe that there's a world and then there's a God. We believe there's only one thing. The only thing that is real in this world, the only thing that is actually significant in this world is God. But dear friends, it's only the first part of the journey. Next week we'll learn chapter 21. Let's go even deeper. Let's understand this phenomenon even more. Dear friends, that wasn't bad. 839. You know what? Not bad. Only 10 minutes overtime. I mean, learn the entire chapter. Because I want you to, if, if, if we break this up into too many classes, you're going to lose the thread. It's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be too much information. I want to go through these chapters more quickly, more succinctly, so that we could wrap our heads around it and get it and see where the author is taking us to with all these ideas. So, dear friends, round one of understanding the deep theology of what we Jews believe in the one God. We don't believe in monotheism. We believe in monorealism. Monothingism. <laughs> there's not only one God. There's not only one deity. There's not only one divinity. There's only one thing. The world has only one thing in it, and that's God. Very so, deep, very deep. <laughs> very deep, yes. This is, but it's also simple. It's deep, but the central idea is very simple. The analogy, the author really gave us a very hefty analogy. That's a very deep analysis of the human psyche. The author just shows you how deep of an understanding he had of the process of the human psyche, the processes of the human soul. You know, where words first develop, it's fascinating. 
And he's using that to help us give us an analogy from the Torah that the creation are words of God. Well, then that helps us understand what what the world is vis-a-vis God. Dear friends, I want to wish you all a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for joining. And we'll see you all next week. And of course, we should only have good news. We should only have good news from our holy land. God will. Amen. Amen, amen. Amen.